You're listening to the ConsumerFi Podcast, powered by Norridge, loan software that accelerates change. Hey, welcome everybody to the ConsumerFi Podcast. I am your host, Joel Kennedy, here with Daniel Perry, a great man, fantastic risk mind. I've been quoted as saying, I think he's the best and uh, nobody's refuted it. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you, Joel. That was a very glowing uh, and probably undeserved. There we go. It's all downhill from here. But uh, so, Daniel, uh, can you give folks a little bit of a background uh, about True Decision? I'm obviously very familiar with it. Um, Tell folks a little bit about True Decision and a little bit about yourself, your background. Sure. Well, you know, I, I came into the auto finance industry at the uh, the great AmeriCredit back in the uh, in the late '90s, and uh, a great experience. The company had uh, went through a couple of economic cycles, had uh, very rapid growth, and you learn quite a few things during events like that. But um, uh, we built that company up. Uh, actually, we very loosely, there are thousands of people that work there uh, over a, of a fairly short period of time to over 16 billion in receivables. Uh, and I left that company with three other partners in '06, and I thought, you know what? Late 2006, what a great time to start a subprime auto lender. Right. Uh, and so I, with three other partners, left a great company with great pay and great people, uh, all, most of which are still there. And we, we set out on our own. And then, of course, in, in March 07, the first domino, I think, was New Century Mortgage. And we're, we're sitting there, uh, one of my business partners and I were trying to raise money in, in the middle of, of 2007 as the subprime mortgage crisis is unfolding. And people are looking at us like you're out of your mind to be starting a, a subprime auto company uh, at this point. Uh, but I will come back to this point later in the podcast. Uh, we still went forward. We got investment. We grew it to over $2 billion. I was chief credit officer there from when we started to here. And I left with our CFO. And we started a couple of other companies. But one of the companies we started, which is a company we're focused on right now, is True Decision. So there are um, there, just $700 billion in auto finance every year. And uh, uh, about 38% of that volume is tied up in your top 20 lenders. The 20th in that top 10 or top 20 list has less than a percent of the market. So it's very fragmented. I was very fortunate to work for companies with deep pockets uh, and we built out some incredible analytics, uh, very expensive to do that. Uh, Those resources aren't available to most lenders, but they still need those tools. So the idea behind True Decision was to build an analytic platform as a service rather than having that massive infrastructure spend uh, like we did at my two prior auto companies. Uh, Or uh, you can go out to consultants that will charge you well into six figures for models, but it's up to you to figure out how to deploy it in your operations. We said, look, we can stand in the gap, have a pay-per-use model, uh, make it affordable and accessible to lenders. So we, we have large clients and small clients. It's kind of interesting. We've actually branched out. We have motorcycle lenders. We have uh, publicly traded companies, a lot of private companies. We have banks, uh, personal loans, legal services, things like that. So the, the, the risk, uh, the, the process is uh, very transportable to different types of uh, lending classes. Uh, but our goal is to meet the lenders where they are, deal with the pain points, and use data and analytics to help them solve the problems and make a bottom line impact. Uh, and, you know, this is... Um, 
when we started this, we thought we were just surviving until the private equity market would be better for auto lending. Uh, and as it turned out, uh, uh, there's a huge need, huge response for this, and it's taken off, and, and we're, uh, we're having a great time doing what we're doing, helping lenders. That's tremendous. You know, Daniel, you're also well known for your market outlook and updates, and you're an active uh, writer and speaker. Um, let's, you know, the, the reason why I brought you on was to touch on that. And we're, you know, I, I thank you for, for providing us this update in the time, and, and it couldn't be even more timely. Um, you know, what we want to get into on this uh, is going to be where are we in terms of the market and the recovery? And I'm really interested in understanding your outlook on, on where things are going. So that's going to be the, the kind of general scope of our conversation. So I'm going to, I'm going to turn it over to you. I'll, I'll ask questions, but I really, we, we have, uh, there's actually a presentation uh, that, that, that accompanies this. Daniel, that's something that people can, can request of you, uh, the listeners of the podcast. Is that something they can request? Absolutely. Uh, uh, Daniel.Perry, P-A-R-R-Y, at truedecision.com. True decision is spelled without an E in the true, T-R-U decision, one word. Uh, so you can reach out. You can also go to our website, truedecision.com, and there's ways to contact us there. Uh, but yeah, happy to, happy to send it out to anybody that's interested in it. Great, great. Well, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it to you to kind of get us started. Um, I think you mentioned as we were doing our prep that, you know, you're you were hearing some folks starting to use the R word, you know, that might be a good place to kind of get started. Well, sure. Yeah. I just, I actually heard it uh, on, on my way over listening to uh, news radio, uh, people talking about us being in a recession. Uh, people were quoting recession in March when there hadn't been any GDP contraction or anything else. So, but that goes to the typical economic forecast or outlook, which is why I think it's important to, has some counterbalances out there. People love to be the first one to predict doom and gloom. Uh, and, and it's uh, usually your typical economic forecasts are lazy. They will say things, things have a, a strong chance of being really awful. Uh, there's a likely chance it's only gonna be marginally worse than it is. And at the best case, nothing's gonna change. So you never really have anybody go out on a limb uh, and there's, you know, there's never any accounting for these people. People have been predicting a subprime auto blow up for, you know, uh, uh, 20 years. As long as I've been in, biz in the business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, it's, and it never stops. And nobody's ever held to account. In other words, people make these uh, make these statements. A lot of them are short sellers. A lot of them are investment advisors that are trying to broker deals for companies and they want to set themselves up as pundits. It's very lazy forecasting, and it's also inaccurate. So if, if the bad thing doesn't happen, then everybody's happy, right? And if it does happen, then they're going to say, look, I'm the one who called it. How many radio ads have you heard of promoting some guy's book that says, this, is a, this guy is the first one to call and right. call the Great Recession? It's always that way. Buy, it's always buy gold. Just take everything and just turn it into gold. So, uh, yeah, as much as I like William DeBain, his, his ads are always on TV with, uh, <laughs> uh, with, with, with that thing. So, but seriously, um, you know, the, uh, some people maybe have accused me of being Pollyanna on the outlook. Uh, I'm always bullish on auto. It's a fantastic industry. Uh, and, and it survived very well throughout recessions. And well, so when people... When you got the data to back it up, Daniel, you have, you have a more substantial point of view. And that's, that's why I love having your market outlook. Sorry to cut you off. 
Well, here's here's the the um, uh, the interesting thing is how many times have you seen reports uh, where people are commenting on a rating, rating agency data release or some other news report that says delinquency is the highest for subprime auto? It has been this highest since the recession. We see it all the time, you know, losses are where they were uh, right at the outset of the recession. So that must mean we're all going to blow up. And what nobody mentions is, you know, auto did pretty well through the recession. They didn't blow up. It's a short-lived asset. Nobody except maybe Jay Leno buys a car thinking it's going to go up in value. And so people know that. It's not a speculative investment. It's basic transportation. And if you look back over the last few recessions, you see auto is very robust. So what does it mean? When somebody says, you know, delinquency is at the highest level since the downturn, uh, you, you got to challenge that and say, is that good or bad? And, and, and what would be the reasons for that? And is it something we have to worry about? So when we look at this, that's kind of the approach. It, there are some things that, that concern me most of the time because people are out there uh, uh, with a chicken little mentality. A lot of my posts have to be there, tend to be countering that with positive news. And so there may be those that think it's just uh, always a positive spin. There are some things that concern me. But for the most part, what happens with these reports of the sky is falling is that, you know, lenders contract, people are laying people off, uh, uh, commerce is interrupted, it scares investment in the sector, uh, which limits access to capital and, and hurts the consumer who needs a car. Yeah. And so those sorts of things, I think, need to be dispelled regularly uh, uh, because it, it hurts the industry, it hurts the consumer, uh, particularly in subprime where many consumers are uh, have been historically disadvantaged, uh, limited access to credit, maybe immigrants, maybe young. We were all we were all thin files at one point in our mm-hmm. life. We're not all dead. Right. And so these are people that need to be able to get to work. They're not buying Lamborghinis. It's basic transportation. And so... Uh, when fear mongers go out there and start, uh, you know, for the thousandth time in a row predicting blowups that don't happen, you know, it, it, it actually has an impact on people. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it, that's important for me to get to. But uh, for the sake of time, let's just jump into this. What I want to talk about are, you know, we, if people say we're in a recession. Technically, we'll get to the point where there are a couple quarters of GDP decline, plus a few uh, other factors that the, you know, the National Bureau of Economic Research is the official dating agency of, of recessions, and, and it, uh, they have a few standards in addition to GDP decline. And so two years from now, they'll come out and tell, tell us when the dates are. Nobody knows when they're in the middle of it, right. but everybody's throwing that out there. And so that, that word invokes thoughts of other recessions and what happens. So I want to compare this. Is this a recession or a shock? The next thing I want to go into is, okay, if we frame the argument correctly, what have we gone through? Uh, it gives us a better, more reliable basis to say, okay, if we understand what we've really just been through, uh, we have a better way to frame what it looks like going forward. So we'll look at lender behavior of uh, Q1 to Q3, and, and then sort of bring us up to date. Where are we now? What does the economy look like? Uh, what are the risks? And you know, what's going to happen in auto finance from uh, you know, we're now at the outset of Q4 through uh, early 2021. Uh, I think beyond 2021. Um, uh, it's kind of silly to speculate that uh, so much can happen, but uh, we can only really manage the near term. So with that, I'm going to jump right into this. You know, uh, are we in a recession or are we in a shock? If you look at, uh, if you do a Google search of particularly subprime auto, but broader auto in general, uh, you will see some of the, uh, uh, some of the most uh, uh, severe headlines related to uh, the economy and uh, related to specifically our industry, 
And, and uh, it's because of that reason we talked about. People want to be uh, uh, the first to report the biggest, uh, the biggest death toll in a tragedy, right? right? Each news right. station wants to be the first to report a higher one. I incidentally, you being out in California, uh, years ago when I was working my way through college, I worked on the emergency crew for Greyhound. And uh, so I worked all night in an office where there were disasters or other things that, that you know, the military, they need equipment to move people or, or whatever it is. And then we would handle those types of situations. I was working in 1990 on the night of the earthquake and the uh, uh, huge earthquake in 1990 in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And so we were, uh, they closed the harbor, they closed the airports. The only way into the city was by bus. And uh, so we, we were, I was busy uh, rounding up uh, uh, equipment from all over the U.S., wherever I could get it and wherever I could get drivers to send it out there. So that's one of the things we did. And I kept watching the news reports and people covered 100 dead, 200 dead, 300 dead. And it got up to something like 500 and then it turns out to be half that number. But mm. everybody was just hammering to report the bad news. Uh, there's an old joke that uh, economists are pessimistic by nature. Uh, they predicted 10 out of the last two depressions. Right. So uh, uh, but that's, that's what we got in the headline. News. And so, you know, there was uh, a lot of uh, a Bloomberg wrote an article, uh, published an article uh, back in the summer that said, you know, this is the worst, the worst uh, recession in eight decades. Okay, hold on. You know, we got, uh, we got one, at the time they wrote this, we had one quarter of, uh, of bad news. And, and granted, people really didn't know where it was going to be headed. But we certainly didn't have enough to make that statement back then. Uh, and uh, so the New York Times uh, also published an article in June that said we went into a recession in February. I don't know how they get that number. But yeah. How, how, do you even, how do you even do that? You don't have the, the, the classic definition even satisfied. Well, you know, it just uh, there's sometimes I, I think that the major most respected uh, news outlets are uh, just a step above tabloid reporting when it comes to things like this, because you know, that's uh, uh, it sells papers, I guess. Uh, yeah. There's a recent Wall Street Journal article, an article, a uh, Wall Street uh, Journal article in August about the coming auto collapse. And so uh, it was uh, sometimes when I read these things, it's all I can do to stop myself from posting a response. But uh, but it's more of the same tripe that we see. But what I found very interesting is Goldman Sachs Research had an uh, excellent uh, re- economic review. They published this in May on their website. So I'm always impressed with someone that predicts things, uh, posts them, and then those things happen. Uh, and then they're even posting something positive and it happens yeah. going on. So uh, you have people out there predicting a 25%, 30% unemployment rate, the, you know, the worst disaster ever. Uh, Goldman called it. They said it's going to peak at 14, which it did. Uh, peak at 14%, and they said it'll, it'll slowly get down to 9% by January 2021, which it's already it's already got uh, uh, come in lower than that. But uh, so that's on their website. I, I referred, there's some really great support for that, um, but it's, it's done substantially better. So we'll get into the economic news toward the end of this, but uh, I just point people to that because it's a good resource. So we, the question is, are we in a recession or a shock? The difference is recessions. Uh, so for those that have the presentation and are viewing it, uh, I've got a, a, a graphic up here from the Federal Reserve on the unemployment rate. So unemployment started to increase late 07, uh, and you see the official dates of the recession on this graph through uh, late 07 through mid-2009, and you see the unemployment rate went from the high fours up to 10%, yep. and it took, it took two years to do that. By the time it got back down to that five-ish percent, 
it was another six years. And so these recessions are very protracted events. And it's because there's an underlying weakness in the economy or something that has to be corrected, and it takes time to correct it. Right. And so that's what you see with unemployment rate. Now, there are those that will argue that, uh, you know, the president at the time had sort of an FDR uh, approach and it made it last longer. And, and uh, those on the other side will say it would have been worse. Uh, but regardless of your political outlook, these things aren't, it's a multi-year event, right? It's, it's, uh, and it's because there's fundamental weakness. Now, that's a recession. When we think about a shock, that's like a Hurricane Katrina. So we had three, um, Ike, Sandy, and Katrina, three hurricanes, 05, 08, and 2012. And uh, it was just the most recognizable one for everybody that might be listening would be Katrina. Uh, and I was in America that day. We're, we're looking at uh, forecasting losses for any parish in Louisiana that was slightly wet. Uh, and it turned out to be far less uh, devastating than we thought, not in terms of damage in human life and things like that, but in terms of our portfolio losses. And so uh, what happened is the hurricane comes in and wipes out everything in an area. It's just complete destruction, but it bounced back very quickly. And so what we have is a shock. The, eco the uh, economic situation, the decline isn't because there was a problem with the economy. We had this exogenous factor of the virus that came in and shut everything down and interrupted commerce. And so uh, there aren't years of repair uh, of some fundamental weakness to get through. Now, certainly there's going to be some damage. Uh, we hear news of uh, American Airlines talking about laying off um, thousands of people. And we hear uh, from uh, uh, you, you look at the bar restaurant industry, you look at uh, travel, hospitality, hotel business. Uh, there's a lot of damage that's been done to be sure. So I'm not minimizing yeah. that. But what I'm talking about in the greater picture, uh, uh, this was predicted to be more of a V-shape by what I would consider the more rational people, a V-shaped recovery as some protracted uh, uh, recession recovery. So, And I saw a lot of people that I otherwise think are good analysts talking about five years and six years out to get back to normal. I just, I just think there's no basis for that. When you look at what we saw in each of these hurricanes in, in, a, in an isolated geographic area, is that things did bounce back very quickly. So um, there's a couple things related to this too, is that you, in, in auto lending, for example, you're going to have some people that will default because they lost their job, no question. Um, but you don't have systemic credit issues. Credit performance was fine before this. Uh, you always have uh, issues maybe with one lender or another, but credit was fine. Recoveries were fine. If anything, the market was a little frothy, so it was a little um, uh, competitive, and so that means margins are tight. But there weren't, you know, you weren't seeing delinquency losses, uh, you know, off the off the charts or, or recoveries that were far out of line. Um, the debt providers for auto lenders, they they uh, understand these types of shocks. We got carte blanche from the rating agencies and the uh, our, our our debt providers uh, to take care of people, give forbearance where it was needed in the event of these hurricanes, and that's exactly what's happened with COVID. Uh, is, they don't yeah. want an artificial. They don't want an artificial event of default. No lent, no rating agency wants to pull the blow up because of an artificial and you know short-lived event. And no uh, no debt provider they do they do not want to take control of your portfolio. They don't want to do a servicing transfer. So they know that you have to give deferments out or go repo and have a compassionate response. Of course, you have to worry about the public. Too, if you don't, I mean, so there's, but the, you're getting all kinds of leeway to take care of the customer. That's right. Um, the challenge, the challenge is that lenders aren't bringing in money when that happens. So if you have increased 
if you aren't repoing it, you're not getting the money from the auctions when you sell the car and you're not uh, collecting payments with more, more deferments. And so it puts a, a crash a cash crunch on, but it's a temporary setback. And you got to think that these pools are averaging for auto 66 to 72 month pools. Most of those liquidate in two to three years, but the terms are that long. So you have a setback that may be a six month window uh, and it's not all evenly distributed. So in the grand scheme of things, it's a blip. Mm-hmm. Right now, it seems right. Yeah. Um, so, but in a shock, you have you know, substantial devastation, but it's it's confined to a limited period, and that's what I think we're in right now. And there's really some interesting things that I wouldn't have thought, uh, but I'm not surprised at coming up with with the effect of all the deferments that took place. Oh, interesting. So, um, you know, the key lender issues, obviously, like I mentioned, uh, you know, you're, you're short of cash. Um, but the other things are, this is a positive thing. For a couple of years now, there have been a lot of reports about auto lenders uh, uh, delinquency being very, very high. So it's, it's your 60 days or 90 days is higher than it was even at the outset of the recession. Well, there's reasons for that. Uh, and so where most of those reports come from, are the bond reports. Now there's probably 200 billion on an annual basis in subprime auto. Mm-hmm. Only 25 billion of that ends up in subprime ABS. So you have, you have let's call it, you know, eight to 10% of it ends up uh, in the bonds. And so of that, two thirds of those bonds, two thirds of that 25 billion is three lenders. So a lot of those reports that come out about delinquency they're only talking about a couple, really a couple lenders that are driving most of that. But what happens with collections is uh, when things get tight, people will start delaying the repo. They'll delay the assignment. They'll use more deferments. Right. They will keep things in repo inventory longer. Well, if you're not charging it off, by definition, your delinquency is going to go up. So if you have a lot more forbearance in your collections, and it's not always nefarious. It's not always somebody trying to gain the numbers. Any good collection manager wants more time to collect on that debt. They think they can fix it. Give me more time. I'll turn this loan around. And so uh, they want to, they want to be able to do that. And so the more forbearance you show your delinquency is going to balloon because it wouldn't be there. If you charge it off, you would have pulled it out of it. So uh, you can have the same credit, but it'd be managed different from a collection standpoint. And you see delinquency go up. And what you're doing is you're pushing the loss out to a later period. Right. So, um, uh, so that's, you know, that's, that's an important, important, important thing to look at here. But uh, as we look at the lender activities, so what, what it had, you know, January, February, we knew of the virus, but I think nobody, nobody thought it would pan out like this. Um, but it was really mid-March when things hit the proverbial fan. And you saw contractions of about 30% from that. Yeah. That April, April, April and May were just devastating um, in terms of the loan volumes that we saw. And, and Joel, you and I were spent a lot of time with with each other in Q1. And when all this unfolded, uh, I, I, I'm sure you were in a similar spot. Uh, you know, m- me being ever the optimist, I, I was seeing my light flash before my eyes. Uh, I can't, you know, I'm like, okay, what are we going to do? I'm talking to my wife about, you know, uh, how do we protect our cash? How do we survive a protracted? Yeah, so I was, you know, I was getting the survivalist gear and all that. So. And, um, uh, and Daniel, that's exactly what consumers did. So in Q1, there was a shift where there was far more cash buyers um, and more leases. And then that really dropped off in Q2. Everybody moved over to financing. And, and believe it or not, the captives are the ones who really picked up the lion's share of that as well. But, um, but please so continue. Here's, 
here's what's interesting. Typically, February, March, April, everybody's getting their tax refunds. Mm-hmm. That, that drives the buying season. And uh, so that was delayed. And, and this is an interesting dynamic because, you know, whenever we go to conferences, Joel and I, you've been to, you know, I've been at the same conferences for the last 10, 15 years together. Uh, and, and whenever you go, they always have a visionary who's going to talk about where things are going. And the visionary always says uh, dealerships will be gone. They've predict, been predicting that for 20 years. We're not right. going to have dealerships. We're going to have flying cars and everything's going to you know, be, be improved. Well, the dealerships aren't going anywhere. But because they are, uh, uh, they're an inefficient intermediary, um, but people still like going to the dealer. Somebody's got to service it. They like driving the car. And dealers haven't gone anywhere. And so because of that dynamic, they haven't been really forced to innovate that, that much. Mm-hmm. There are Silicon Valley tech companies. You've got your Carbonage. You've got others out there. Um, uh, and so uh, that are doing the online, uh, online lending, online car sales. But by and large, when you look at the vast majority of vehicles through your typical dealerships, 17,000 franchise dealerships and somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 or 50 independents, 1,000 independents. And so that's a lot. And so they aren't going anywhere. And it, and it goes to the fact that people like going to the dealer uh, uh, to look at the car, not, not necessarily the car buying experience. But the interesting thing here is that oh, there's been all this prognostication about dealers will one day go away. Uh, but what this has done, so they haven't really had to innovate uh, because that hasn't happened. Uh, people still need the dealer. Um, but what happened at the beginning of COVID when they were, people were going into lockdown. I mean, in Texas where I am, I actually got my daughter a car, I think in April. Um, and so uh, uh, I was very, I never thought I'd be so happy to see car ads on TV and actually be able to go into a dealer. So we made special appointments. They did all the protocols. But online buying, no touch, getting all your docs, getting the car delivered, dealers figured out very rapidly how to stay in business, and uh, which is good. You know, they adapted very quickly, and I think it's never going to go back to the way it was. No, I don't think uh, it will. So it's, it's kind of transformed the dealers and forced them to modernize in a lot of ways that they didn't have to before. Um, and then you have this massive influx of incentives. So the, the interesting thing, you know, you know, tax filing got moved out to July from April 15th. But what the data shows us is that most people still filed them in March or uh, in, in, you know, before April 15th. And so people are now getting those tax refunds and they're getting government stimulus. So they're, and, and in many cases, some people were getting unemployment, uh, but they're getting more unemployment. They're making at the regular job when people went out. Uh, and, and, and that's combined with another dynamic. Manufacturers are saying, we are not going, we've got metal to move. And you saw incredible incentives being pushed through. You know, 90 days to first payment. I actually took advantage of some of these. Yeah. Uh, but 90, 90 days to first payment, you're seeing people offer credit life insurance or we'll make up to six, seven, eight, nine payments. Uh, I think Kia Hyundai had, had a similar promotion. Uh, but but um, so that was, you have all these incentives and the consumer has a bunch of cash in their hands. Yeah. So that buying season got delayed and probably increased. So we were down 30% and then it went the other way. Yeah. Uh, and so the, that, um, it, and the consumer tastes as well, Daniel. You know, we've spoken about Carvana and the the preference for a lot of prime and upper credits, you know, buying used vehicles. That consumer taste has officially flipped. There's much more of a preference for the new vehicle. And I know the drivers must be associated with what you just mentioned. Sure. So what you saw going on in that in that is that as everybody knows, uh, people were foregoing repossessions. 
And in some areas, geographically, it was politically mandated. Uh, that is, that's kind of changed, but during this period of increasing deferments and uh, a, a suspension, near, near complete suspension of auto repossessions. And so that was a, a, a big shock to that industry. Uh, you know, the repo and quarter industry, uh, and of course the lenders were without the cash. We also saw a lot of deferments. And so um, there's some data from Fitch that's included in this uh, chart, but you typically saw, what you typically would see for subprime paper, for example, at any given time, you'd have about 17, 15 to 17% that would not be amortizing. So that means people aren't making their payment on time. That jumped to about 25 to 27% as all this COVID activity unfolded. So the way, that, the way to think about that is you had, um, you had your typical 15 to 17% in non-payment that you would normally see, uh, plus another you know, 1,000 basis points, let's say. Not all of that will default. Uh, so when you think about what's the impact of deferments and non-payment, so you had you had uh, delinquency and deferments and so that it basically was about a fifty percent increase in people that weren't paying their bill. Um, so, but it's not a hundred percent default rate. So people produce these forecasts of devastating yeah. default rates. Here's what you got to look at: there might be a fifteen to seventeen percent non-payment rate in subprime, but your annual charge-off is about half a percent. You're charging off about half percent of the portfolio on a monthly basis. So if you have a 15 to 17 delinquency rate, yeah, you're charging off half a percent. So that's the number you got to put at it. So even though there's a 50% increase in non-payment, you've got to take that with a grain of salt. So, okay, now I go from half a percent to 0.75 or maybe even 1% charge off if, if repos and charge offs were happening at a normal pace. So it's not, the sky is not falling. It's not, yeah. not I'd say it's pretty, but it's not as bad as people would make it out. Well, and wouldn't you so, think, Dan, wouldn't you think, Daniel, that a lot of those deferments were kind of uh, they came easy? So somebody may have had stimulus money; they may have been fine. They were offered a deferment, and they went ahead and they took it. That and uh, people knew that they could get forbearance. I mean, we yeah. we even as a company did that. We went to our landlord in our office space and asked for a little bit of a break. Uh, we went to other vendors, uh, you know, as a as a software. As a technology company, we use a, a lot of uh, high-end software that's fairly expensive. We were able to push a lot of that out. And so everybody knew they would get away with that. Uh, and so uh, they, I don't want to say get away, but they, they knew they would get the forbearance. So, yeah. But now but we look at where we are now. So we've gotten through that. There's some really interesting effects. Um, people are predicting 25 30% unemployment. Goldman predicted 14% mid-year. And it would slowly taper down to nine by January, and then we'd start returning to normal in 2021. Well, they were spot on. Uh, we hit, uh, I think, 14.1% in June, but it's come down every month since then. It went down to 13, 12, 10, 9, 8. We were at eight and a half last month. We're at seven, nine as of today. The new unemployment report came out. So that's that's tremendous. But that's a um, uh, when people talk about the Great Recession, and there's a graphic here that shows unemployment from 09 to 10 and how long it took to come back. And we're more than halfway back from that 14 spike. So that's, that's very, very encouraging. Even though we're hearing, you're hearing uh, uh, anecdotal reports of, of large employers and people having layoffs. Um, a lot of that is also, you have to think about these big industries start announcing these layoffs. They're also sending a message to politicians to say, we need to get a stimulus factor. We need the yeah. industry bailout. So a lot of that is posturing for that. Um, and uh, but again, everything that we're looking at, there's uh, wages are back on the rise. We've got that uh, 
uh, we've got that on here. And so you had wages were uh, increasing uh, tremendously over the past few years. Uh, and it spiked, they were up um, uh, 8% um, average hourly pay, uh, uh, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And then that plummeted. Well, now that's back, it's back on the, on the uptick again. And I don't want to uh, be uh, uh, guilty of what I accuse people of making something out of one data point, uh, a trend out of it, but it's just encouraging news. So uh, yeah. the purchasing manager's index is at 55. Anytime that's above, the purchase manager's index comes out every month, and it's a great leading indicator of economic activity. So anytime it's above 50, it means the economy is growing. What that means is, is these, you have to purchase things uh, to make products, and these purchasing managers are increasing their purchasing. So that, which means they're depleting inventory, and right. which means buying things. Right. And so you have that combined with consumer confidence rising. Uh, the new orders index is at 60.2%, very similar to PMI. It's on the rise. So these are all, as we go into Q4 early 2021, there is great news on, on economic activity. And, and, so, and, for, and, and for folks real quick, sorry, Dan, and for folks, the PMI, the 50, is, is 50 that kind of key pivot point where if it's under 50, we're, we're contracting and over 50, we're expanding, right? Yeah. And it's been a reliable metric for, for many years. And so uh, now people will make a, a lot out of up or down noise within a narrow range, but you really want to look at where the trend is. And so, um, so that, you know, th- these are, these yeah. are uh, uh, pieces of good news. Uh, People are seeing we're getting back to work. And and then when you look at the jobs report, huge increases in bars and restaurants. And so that was one of the industries that was hit. Last month, uh, unemployment, what what prevented it from dropping even more uh, was you had increased unemployment in the areas of of, uh, education and schools. So a lot of uh, universities, a lot of uh, schools have shifted a, a substantial amount of online learning. Uh, and then government entities. So government and education employment uh, took a hit because they're adapting to the new normal. And so, uh, and that will that come back? I think on the education side, it certainly will. Um, and so, but that was otherwise it would have been even lower. So the, you know, these are these are good uh, good things as we look into the coming year. Uh, and so when we look at um, you know what what the outlook is. Hey, Daniel, can I yes. pause you right there? Sorry, sorry to cut you. Sure. So absolutely. As opposed to when you compare this, because because I don't want to take the analogy too far, and I think this is what you're saying, uh, you know, a hurricane, Katrina, or something like that is is more analogous to a shock versus an actual recession, which shows that there's there's things going on and there's a recovery and there's it's a you know you have a longer time window, but with this particular event, what you're saying is, you know, the recovery will be more sim- you know, the recovery doesn't have to be. Uh, take into account that there was these, um, you know, loosening credit and all these other sins of the past that we were doing. We had this shock. As we go back to real life, there are going to be some structural impacts. Education may be different. How you uh, go to a salad bar is probably permanently different. Um, Food service is probably permanently different. And those are structural pieces that really what you're saying is, hey, those pieces, you know, we're going to want to keep an eye on them because as we come back, those may be the pieces that represent that structural, more kind of similar to a recession type, you know, needing to be addressed. You know, it's, uh, yeah, that, it's, there's there will be shifts. Uh, the thing I think that's interesting. So just for the sake of time, I want to get to a couple things. There are some things to be concerned about, but I think it's overwhelmingly positive. 
But there are some of these structural shifts like you're talking about. What I think we have yet to see is uh, what's going to happen to office space. So you and I have a mutual friend who has a software company uh, that uh, uh, this individual pays 25000 a month in rent. And they've all been working remotely since March. And the company's doing better than ever. So I think uh, many companies are looking at, uh, and there's a fear that productivity go down, you know, nobody's going to do any work if they're on an office and sort of a difficult to get out of the traditional mentality. Uh, so I think people are really looking at that and, let, and companies are going to say, look, uh, if we don't know what's going to happen with the election, of course, that creates a lot of volatility. And, you know, there's half the country thinks the sky is falling if, if one person got elected and it's the same for the other side. Uh, if it doesn't go their way. But the bottom line is that people find uh, uh, find ways to adapt. There are going to be structural changes. Uh, if, uh, you know, Biden gets elected, uh, it's, it's uh, you're likely going to see increased business taxes. And what companies will do is companies will say, well, that's got to come from somewhere. Yeah, I can pass it on to the consumer. So the consumer is always a loser in that situation, uh, or usually. But they may look for it in other ways, which is, do I need to be paying for all this massive corporate campus? Can we do a lot remotely, right? So they're going to, business will, whoever gets elected, uh, and we see this, it's a pendulum that swing, uh, 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 Justice Ginsburg said that, that swings left to the right. Um, but, um, you know, the, commerce still happens. I remember all of my conservative friends thought we were all going to die when Obama got elected. But guess what? I was at a company where, you know, the four of us started out and we grew the thing. We're at about, 15 million in the middle of extra was at about 15 million in the middle of 2008. And a few years later, we're over 2 billion. Uh, during. So, you know, uh, and, and there are similar stories that have gone on over the last four years. So it, people will find a way to engage in commerce. I think the government can uh, accelerate or to get in the way, but people are going to figure it out, whoever gets elected. So that's the good news is that, uh, you know, uh, if, if any administration that comes in, even if they decide to have very draconian policies, it's going to take them a year or more to get it through a, a gridlock Congress. And so for the next year, we can look at great economic news coming into the beginning of the year. Hopefully we're all looking at a big vaccine and we can get back to whatever the new normal will be. Uh, but uh, there's good economic news. Lenders are growing. There are a few risks. Uh, and so this is positive. Anything a new administration is going to do is going to take a year or more to really have an impact. So when we look at what we can control, which is the near future. Whoever gets in, uh, it's it's uh, it, it's not going to have much impact on our industry, in my opinion. Uh, and so uh, there's there's reason to be very positive and encouraged. You wouldn't know that when you watch the news. Uh, and I don't know anybody of either party who watches the news and is happy. Uh, uh, most days. And so, uh, but for our industry, what it means for our business, I think the economy's growing, employment's getting better, uh, wages are going up, uh, and people are buying and selling things. This is good news. Um, what we have to watch out for is um, there are repos that should have happened uh, in Q1 through three that didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are a lot of deferments that happened. So there's the normal repos you would have taken in Q2. Uh, you know, let's say you do 10,000 repos a month and you're putting them through auction. You have, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 repos you would have taken in the normal course of business that you right. did. So those are going to be coming through. And you only have so much time that lenders usually have agreements with their debt providers. You can only hold on to that inventory so long. Uh, and then you have any incremental repos that will come from right. people who lost their job. 
all that stuff's going to be going. That's, that could be a glut of inventory going through the auctions in Q4 and Q1 and 2. So lenders are going to have to be strategic about um, what, when, and what they put through. Um, and so we, what, what has been going on in the past few months is recovery values have been high because there's not much inventory there. So those that are putting them through are getting premium dollars, and it's very expensive for car dealers to acquire inventory at the auctions. So that's going to shift. It's going to go back to where the car dealers have an advantage again. Uh, but for lenders, that'll mean uh, uh, larger charge-offs. It'll mean uh, worse recoveries and higher net losses for a period of time. Most shocks that we see in inventory uh, that affect the auctions, it's about a three, maybe a four-month period where you know your recoveries might normally be 45%. They're probably yeah. going to drop down to 38% in a couple months, and then a few months after that, it'll be back to normal. So we do have that bubble coming through. I hope it's not. I hope um, you're putting me on this podcast in a few months and tell me I was wrong. I'd love to, I'd love to be wrong. Well, Daniel, you know, you're, you're in good company. There's a guy, uh, I, think, I think you met Joe Chiaffi. He's a partner with Davis and Gilbert. He does a report called Credit Chronometer, and uh, he interviews all the different contingencies that that operate in an ABS environment. So the originators, the servicers, uh, the funders, and then this other group like lawyers and other people that evaluate the industry. They're, they're seeing things, as, and these are the people who, who live and, and breathe by the, I mean, this is their daily existence. And they're really, it, the bottom line on that is it, it's like moderate pessimism, which, which Joe actually would describe as modest pessimism because he would have expected a lot more of a uh, profound point of view, but these guys are, are relatively, you know, at, at an 80% level across all those cohorts, they're relatively agreed. They think there's going to be some disruptions. There's going to be some, you know, uh, some issues from coming off of all the, the deferments and, and the government stimulus. But in large part, they feel that there's enough uh, juice there within the, the loss provisions of these ABSs to cover. They're not concerned that we're gonna we're gonna trip beyond that and have to go you know to extreme measures. So, um, Daniel, I will say you're in you're in you're in some pretty decent company with that point of view. Well, here's an interesting thing, as well that I'd like to talk to you. People are resuming repos. Uh, they're charging things off. They're putting things through auction. Deferments are going back to normal levels, right? So, uh, but there's an interesting thing that happened here. People were predicting, uh, you know, uh, unemployment goes to 14 percent. You're going to all of those uh, people are also going to automatically default. Well, that doesn't happen. It's a it's a portion of that number. That's an incremental default. Uh, and so people tend to overestimate that. Um, and so people have feared in the industry that lenders abuse deferments. They're just covering up losses. They're just trying to hide the numbers. So there's a skepticism. And that's caused by a couple of companies that did that. A couple large companies right. in the 90s blew up and there was fraud and jail time and other things that happened. And so uh, uh, there are, there, there are, there's a, a legitimate concern. Are you just using your repos to cover up defaults? I'm sorry, using your deferments to cover up defaults. And so uh, most lenders use them responsibly. They're typically between three to 5% of the portfolio on a monthly basis, at least uh, on the lower end of the credit spectrum. And what we find out is that if they're used properly, you know, they're used in the, let's say, 45 to 60 day range. These deferments make the customer current. You take the two payments they owe you and you stick it on the end of the loan. And you do that because the customer says, well, I'm, I'm unemployed. I lost my job. Well, they'll find one in a couple months. They're usually typically uh, more easily replaceable, particularly in subprime, where the, the incidence of unemployment is higher. 
but the duration is much shorter than those in prime. And yeah. so they find a job. And so what you get is it's not profitable, regardless of what the AG of Massachusetts thinks. Uh, it's not profitable to repo a car. Um, it, you, uh, the lender has about half of that, that or more that they're going to end up charging off. So it's a loser for the company and it's a loser for the customer who needs a vehicle to get to work. The better thing would be to rehabilitate the situation, keep the person in the car. It's better for the company as well to have that, that loan not charged off. And so uh, the, those deferments, what we've shown, so I've been a senior risk manager. I've been the top risk manager at, at two large companies, and we would always track post, post-deferment charge-offs. And we would see, and uh, my last two companies, it was in the low 20%. So that means these are people that would have gone to repossession and charge-off, and 75, 80, I'm sorry, uh, uh, 70 to 75% of them ended up paying off the note. That's a huge, and then those that default, you typically get nine to 12 months of payments out yeah. of them before yeah. they charge off. And, and so my experience as well, yeah. When they're properly used, they're great. And so, uh, and I, I know lenders that are adamantly against doing, uh, doing deferments, and I think they're out of their mind because there are losses that wouldn't happen if they got a little bit of, the, if a, a little bit of forbearance. And so lenders that use that in a disciplined way, it's very good. Well, what we're seeing now, and I, we see this from rating agency reports, there's not a glut of incremental losses beyond what we thought would happen. So we're not seeing these COVID losses happen. Maybe they're delayed. Maybe they will happen at some point, but we're not seeing it right now. And what we might see is that lenders got carte blanche to give forbearance. And so a lender that may have had 20,000 defaults they got to take a lot of those people and defer them and a lot of those people may cure. So at the end of the day, instead of the 20 that they should have, they might have 15. And so that's a really interesting thing we're seeing right now. I hope it plays out like that. Again, it's good for the consumer. It's good for, for the lender. And so, uh, you know, that has yet to be seen, but that that's pretty interesting. So um, what I would encourage everybody uh, is that, you know, election years always cause volatility. It's very toxic. Uh, you have uh, friends and, and family relationships that are disrupted by this, uh, and people hang on uh, every bit of news, and, and it, it causes wild emotional swings. Uh, that's, you're always seeing that in election years. I'd encourage everybody, regardless of, uh, of where you come down on, on those types of issues, that business will continue. The sun's going to rise. People are going to go to work, and uh, they're going to find a way to engage in commerce. And so I think there's a lot of good news uh, for lending going forward. Uh, and uh, I think it's, it's just going to be, I'm looking forward to a fantastic 2021, particularly when we're all able to go to conferences again. Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely looking forward to it. Well, everybody, th- we, we've had Daniel Perry. He's the president and CEO of, of True Decision. Daniel, uh, a good friend, a dear friend of mine. Thank you so much for joining us today and providing your outlook on the market. It's something that so many people in our space rely on. We need you to keep bringing us this, this information, this perspective. Well, thanks, Joel. I appreciate you having me on. Take care, everyone. The Consumer Five podcast has been brought to you by Norridge, loan software that accelerates change. We'd also like to thank the National Automotive Finance Association, the only trade association exclusively serving the non-prime auto financing industry.